Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the MBIT Podcast, and I'm your host, Seamus Medan. I started this podcast at 15 years old in December of 2020 to bring personal finance education to the next generation. Now, I am 16 years old, and the podcast has evolved to interviewing entrepreneurs, VCs, GPs, and founders of public companies, all of which are designed to delve into insights that have not been shared elsewhere for the next generation of those interested in business. Recently, I ventured into the VC space as a venture fellow at Blitzscaling Ventures, which is backed by the co-founder of LinkedIn, and I am interviewing those farther along in their journey to learn more on everything that I and the audience is curious about. If any of the above sounds interesting to you, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. And now, back to the show. So today, we have a very special guest, Eric Bond, who is the co-founder of Hustle Fund, which invests in early-stage startups, you guessed it, founders hustling their way to success. So first off, Eric, thank you for taking the time to hop on the podcast. How are you doing today? Seamus, I'm doing great, and I'm so excited by the opportunity to speak on this podcast. You have a really great service here for founders and investors. I appreciate you taking the time. It's going to be a pleasure chatting with you today. So prior to your experience in business, you delved into the law industry for a short period of time before pivoting into business. Now, what was your experience like in law? And then why did you transition into business? Yeah. And I just need to caveat by saying I didn't spend very much time exploring law. Maybe the experience you're talking about was my college experiences. So I came into college, I born and raised in Michigan, came out to California to attend college and I thought that I was going to, as one path, become a lawyer. And I did something that was pretty smart in hindsight, although it was not intentional, which is I thought maybe it would make sense for me to talk to a bunch of lawyers first before I commit to this path. A little bit of customer discovery right? (laughs) to see whether these sound like uh, jobs I like. And as part of it, I was able to intern at a great legal headhunting firm uh, called Salutis. That's actually where I met my lifelong mentor, Julie Brush, who is one of the founders of that business. She's incredible. And it also gave me a platform to talk to lawyers in many different types of fields. And after about 20 conversations with lawyers working in 20 different industries, like a sub-industries within the law, every single one of those conversations put me to sleep, right? I was like, this is so freaking boring. I mean, (laughs) no knock, by the way, to the lawyers who are listening. I respect the fact that you found your path, but just for my lived journey, it was not for me. And when I realized that, I also had to realize that I got to do a little bit more work to figure out something else I want to do. And that's how I accidentally fell into entrepreneurship and business. Gotcha. And then as a product manager, which is where you started delving into business, you were added to it where you developed a behavioral targeted messaging system, which appeared in QuickBooks. And then over at Instagram, you launched Instagram Promote for businesses. How did you get interested in specifically product management? And what are some of the key lessons you took away from those years? Being a product manager is such an interesting job, particularly in Silicon Valley, because if you were to ask two product managers what they did, you would not get the same answer. It's such a vague kind of connective tissue job where you're dealing with engineers, you're dealing with legal design, all the different kinds of functions to try to get the product shipped. And it does require many different types of teams, typically, especially in a larger company to get something out. So my journey into product management was accidental. Out of college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And sort of just from luck, just pure luck. I was able to get a job in a rotational leadership 
management program at Intuit, which is a big software company to make QuickBooks and TurboTax and so forth. And so from that, I was able to do rotations in customer service. They literally put me on the phones for technical support in Tucson, Arizona for three months. An incredible job, by the way, and super tough. Product management and design and marketing. And I found that from all those different kinds of rotations, I got most excited about product management, which again is like this very elusive kind of role of just generally moving the ship forward whenever there's a problem in certain cross-functional areas like marketing needs help or engineering needs help and so forth. I dove into it and I really dug it because it felt at the time as a younger guy starting my career in business that this is the closest thing I'm feeling to what it's like to be a CEO of a business. Yep. You get to have a pretty wide swim lane in terms of where you want to focus. It's You're given a lot of discretion in terms of the types of features you want to develop and arguing for the use cases that you think are relevant for consumers. So... I enjoyed it. I don't know if I was that great at it, honestly, <laughs> because for me, what I found, even though these were great companies to work for, and I was happy with certain aspects of it, I just loved being a founder more, which is where I spent the majority of my career, where I had total freedom to do what I want and how I spent my time and design my lifestyle too. That I think is the area that I got most excited in developing was just sort of my founder side of it. But I have to say that starting off as a product manager for one of these established businesses was like paid graduate school education. They taught me a lot about like good mental models of what good should look like and what scaled organizations should look like. And that did set me up for success, I think, later in terms of scaling my own businesses. And you brought up how being a product manager, you felt like you were more of a CEO, which is an excellent point because when I chatted with Spencer Raskoff, who's the former co-founder and CEO of Zillow on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, he brought up how in the early stages of his company, most of it was the innovation. He was able to keep up that period of innovation for a long period of time. But as the company continued to scale, that ended up getting pushed off on other things. Instead, he was mainly focused on the culture at Zillow. Yeah. And then other people were focused on the product management. Yeah, that's right. One of the things I'd encountered as a product manager, and then this sort of happened as some of my own businesses scaled up, is in the very beginning days, when you're overseeing an area of product and the startup is early, you might even be pre-product market fit, but you get a lot of latitude to experiment and shape the business fail, but also like learn from those failures and drive forward something interesting new. And there comes a point though, where you do find product market fit. You realize that, oh, we did hit upon the thing that consumers really need. And then it becomes a little bit more of an exercise of repeatability. It's like, now that we figured out whom we're trying to serve and what we need to serve to those audience members, how do we repeatably grow? Right? So naturally the swim lane that you're swimming in narrows down. Because it's not about necessarily just continuing to endlessly innovate in, in a very white box environment where there's no rules, but you do have some constraints. And I think that really did describe some of the bigger companies that I worked for. Like they were way past product market fit. I mean, QuickBooks has like a 90% market share of the United States and even to this day. And this, like my experience from there was something almost like 20 years ago. You don't upset the Apple cart too much and <laughs> you don't put too many crazy changes like pink buttons everywhere or something. Right. But, and this is what I think attracts me to the job that I have today as a venture capitalist in that I just focus on businesses that are very early, just like typically one or two co-founders, yeah. a really interesting thesis and watching them do the work to try to get to that wonderful moment of repeatability and product market fit. Yeah, I agree. Currently, I'm at a startup called FISH, which is, stands for Funding is Hard. And basically what we're doing is we're trying to make it easier for founders and VCs to connect. And I think the feeling that you get being at an early stage startup, especially working closely with the founding team, it's just a feeling you don't get elsewhere when you're at a later stage startup. It is very different. I mean, when you're 
in the trenches with a small team, first of all, because it's small, you'll get to know each other much more. And just naturally in the course of the work, like getting into each other's lives, like there isn't very much work-life balance in a startup. It's all like this murky gray area. And that's something I actually celebrate. It's sort of a lifestyle choice that you make. Right. Um, And in addition to that, too, because the team is small, there isn't really a a sense of functions. You might be hired as an engineer or hired as a marketer, but the reality is that you're going to have to deal a bit of product management, maybe look at some legal documents, or on occasion have to clean all the mugs in the office and what have you. It's just the team is working together to just move everything along. And for those who really thrive in environments where there isn't a lot of close definition, of what you actually have to do and are open to the idea of like, I just want to learn everything. Those kinds of young founder teams is really difficult to match that or, or even to find that maybe in a much more established, larger Fortune 500 business. I totally agree. And then transitioning here right after that position or your positions over at product management, you jumped into venture capital at 500 startups. What was the turning point for that? And then why did you join 500 startups? Yeah. So I started as a product manager. I ran an education company then for about seven years after that. Started another media company after that, actually, that did well. And then was at Instagram. And then after that, was just thinking about new ideas, but was pulled into venture capital by joining as an entrepreneur in residence at 500 startups. That was a big inflection in my career around 2016 is when that happened. And I have to credit my current co-founder, Elizabeth Yin, for allowing that to happen. At the time, she was a partner at 500. And I was thinking like, maybe I'm going to start another company. I just want some healthcare, a little bit of money and time. And she created this role for me. But once I got into the fund and started to understand a little bit more about the work, formed a thesis in terms of how we think we could do a fund differently if we were to start one, that's when we jump shipped to start Hustle Fund in late 2016 and began investing out of 2017. So a big part of it was I always wanted to design a VC fund with some fellow good human beings that I really admire that represents the kind of fund I wish that I had when I was a founder and happy to dig into that in any direction. Yeah, let's go into that. Let's go into how your fund is different from other funds that currently are in the market for early stage founders. So I think one of the things that we're trying to fight against with our fund is this notion of pattern match, especially at the earlier stages of a company's formation. So the traditional way that a very early stage VC would decide on investing is pretty simple. You have a great founder, Seamus, who shows up. He delivers a wonderful pitch, has maybe some great pitch deck materials that look pretty convincing. And then from a couple of interactions like this, we decide to invest a bunch of money, right? That is the traditional way it's done. But What I've learned over time is that there's a lot of overwhelming implicit bias and explicit bias that actually favors certain founders from others. So let me just sort of cut the BS here and explain what that means. If you're a white or Asian man who went to Stanford or MIT with a computer science degree, worked at a Google or Facebook or whatever fang company, that is a very fundable profile right now in Silicon Valley. And then historically, it has been a very fundable profile. But the data that we saw when we were trying to study this was, we don't think that just because you possess these phenotypes, literally how you look, or pedigree markers, that those alone can predict whether you're going to go on to build a great company. And instead, when we were at 500 startups, we had access to something like 2,500 companies that we've invested in at that point. It's a very large fund. And we were starting to look into the data, starting to look at some of the notes of working with some of these companies. And we discovered that there's a better leading indicator of success, which we call hustle. So for us, hustle is defined as great execution meets high velocity, 
We find that teams that are oriented towards measurement, highly experimental, constantly trying to increase the throughput of their deliverables week after week, month over month, year after year, also tend to just grind out the best businesses. And also that great hustlers look like anyone and come from anywhere. This is actually the core mantra within our fund, which is like, just because you don't come from a top school or live in Silicon Valley or are not a man, I mean, it doesn't matter. Like you can look like anyone and still have the capacity to build incredible business. But we want to seek that out and put a checks and balance on our own implicit biases too, because it's very easy to feel safe in investing in the profile I just mentioned, that very privileged profile, because that's the way that's been done. That's the pattern that's been matched. So in order to put a checks and balance on that, we deploy our capital a bit differently. We first start by writing a very fast $50,000 check into a lot of teams. Last month, we saw 700 deals. And then we also wrote checks into about seven companies at an initial $50,000 check level. If we're curious about the company, we will, within one meeting usually, within 25 minutes, just offer some money. What happens next is then we'll work with the team on a growth project, usually related to sales or user acquisition for about six to eight weeks. And we have a school on growth proprietary only to us called Redwood School, which teaches this stuff. And in addition, we'll pair the founder, Seamus, with two growth mentors in a relevant space. And as a team, we'll have a period of time of collaborating with each other. For us, this is the true due diligence. We can get a much better sense of the team's hustle by watching you work and learn more about your market. But reciprocally, and more importantly, the founders can judge us to see whether we are VCs that actually add any real value. Did we help you on growth, fundraising? Do we seem responsive? Are we good human beings to you? And if we find that we really vibe, we like to hustle on each other's side, we enjoy working with each other, and we're all excited about the market opportunity that founder Seamus is chasing, that's when we'll ask your permission to participate in one or two more rounds of capital, usually between $100,000 to $500,000 checks from us each time to make you what we call a core position within our fund. So... One of the interesting consequences of this model of start with a small check, work together on growth projects to feel each other out, and then concentrate the majority of our funds dollars into a subset of true hustlers is that when you invest in this style, you actually create natural inclusivity. About 40% of that core position set that I mentioned, that subset of true hustlers are women and growing. 27% are underrepresented founders and growing. 60% of our deals are outside of Silicon Valley and growing. Every day, it looks more and more like the population of the United States. And these backgrounds are so across the spectrum because great hustlers look like anyone and come from anywhere. So we think that this is a more fair version of actually how to assess founders early on and also gives us some edge because we can really get a sense of the hustle before we decide to concentrate a lot more investment behind a team. That's super neat. And I totally agree with that philosophy because right here over at the Embit Podcast, I do a lot of hustling to get guests on the show and some pretty high profile guests as well. But as I've continued to do the podcast, I've noticed pretty much one of the key characteristics of hustlers is that they're very motivated to get where they want to go. And they'll take a lot of risk to make sure that they accomplish that goal. And speaking of how do you find those founders who are hustlers in those meetings? And what do you look for when you're on a call with them? Yeah. So the way that we found, find our founders that engage with us is actually operationalizing a philosophy that we decided to run our fund by when we first formed, which is we decided we wanted to become as much a media business as we are a VC fund. Here's the rationale behind that. There are a lot of VC funds now. When we started, there may be a couple hundred, even back in 2017. Now there's several thousand. So we are coming across and sort of ending, I think, this boom cycle where a lot of new emerging managers start to form. So when founder Seamus has the choice to engage with us for some capital raises, 
capital in many ways has become a commodity. Like if you want $50,000, you can, my $50,000 at Hustle Fund is just as good as your dentist's $50,000 angel check, right? Like it, it doesn't matter. So yeah. our view is that if you want to really help founders, for us, like assisting on growth and customer acquisition is one part of it. But we also believe that you need to put a lot of education content out there and really focus on expanding your brand proactively. So we have a bunch of newsletters right now. We have a YouTube series. We're very active in providing monthly webinars. And as a result, it's created a very wide top of funnel for us to draw in lots of founders. I'll also share this, which is one example of a channel that has actually served us very well. This is advice that I got from a VC when I first started Hustle Fund, which is your reputation as a fund is not going to be determined by whom you say yes to, but how you say no. Hmm. So the current standard for how we would reject a founder in this industry, I'm not talking about Hustle Fund, I'm talking about just venture capitalists, is Seamus talks to VC, the meeting goes well or doesn't go well, it doesn't matter. And then the meeting ends and then you never hear from that VC ever again. Like you don't even get a thank you message. You don't get any feedback. You might even respond to email them saying like, hey, like, is there any next step here? Silence, you get nothing. It's a very low etiquette industry. But what we do as a fund is we've invested in making sure that we know how to say no appropriately to founders with the right kind of feedback at scale. Part of it's a little bit of machine learning and like getting a sense of like, here are like the general like themes for why we say no. We can apply that to some templated emails, but we do usually put color in some more context too. And it turns out that because we are good about saying no, one of the biggest channels for our new deals are actually the people whom we reject. They're people who say like, look, even though we didn't get any money, I have a friend uh, who might be a better fit for you. And we see the, the more that more founders that we reject, the more deals that we get. And That's of course, we get deals from our current founders. We get deals from all the media work that we do and so forth. So that creates the flywheel. So that's part one, which is, we wanted to approach this as a media company to ingest deals, but also the media company part is becoming very strategic for us in distribution. So if we want to help you get to your first million dollars of annual revenue, Seamus, um, maybe we can leverage our media channels to share what you're working on, see if we can drive a little bit of performance marketing for your business too. And that's what we're working on very actively right now. Now, in terms of like assessment of deals, I'd say that there's five pillars that we look for, team, problem, solution, market, and traction. I can go through each of them. So team is, for me, the big ones I look for when I talk to a founding team is, do they have relevant skills for solving a given problem? So relevant skills would be like, you know, Seamus and Eric are co-founders, we're launching a new COVID vaccine or something. If we have clinical sciences backgrounds, worked at Genentech or whatever, like that's a good sign. If we were just marketers at Salesforce before this with no science backgrounds, (laughs) that's bad. Even if the opportunity is perfect, like we have no skills for this. I also like to look for things like, did we work together? Is there a history of shipping together? Because that's, I think, a very important test of whether this is a team that can endure. Problem, it's not just enough to say we have a problem statement, like we need Uber for families. As a dad of young kids, I get that. I don't want to lug around the car seat when I take an Uber from with my kids. But how did you arrive at that conclusion? Like, did you talk to 100 families? Did you discover it's only Korean men in California who are dads to have this problem? Or is it much more expansive, right? I like to see like the obsession behind how you arrive to this problem. A solution is generally an assessment of what's the current prototype? Does it generally have like good product themes? Do I think there's a place where it can grow into something really good? Usually most of the products I look at this stage are pretty terrible, to be honest but that's fine. It's meant to be terrible at this early stage. Market, is this measured in the billions? Could this be a huge outcome for our fund and our investors, but also the founder? 
So we can't invest in something that's too niche, but we want something that could be large that can serve a huge outcome for everyone. And then traction, that's a nice to have. If you have early pilots or early customer user customers or users that you can cite to show that you're on your way to shipping something that could scale, that's always nice to see. So team problem solution market and traction. And if the answers to those are good enough, where we're curious, then we'd rather just write you some small check money, the 50K, and then move on to the real due diligence, which is working together. Yeah, you made some excellent points, especially your point on saying no, being able to say no for deal flow, because not only do you get that you do have to, can you continue that relationship with the founder, but also I've one of the things I've noticed is, especially in VC and entrepreneurship, there's a component of luck that incurs. For example, I think when Jeff Bezos decided to start Amazon, if he never saw that newspaper, I don't know if he would have ever started Amazon, which is now worth over a trillion dollars. So I think there's all those components of luck. And every time you can increase your chance of luck for success, that's another important reason. Yeah. I mean, it's a very interesting point. And I hear this from a lot of other successful folks too, is like, there's ways to sort of increase your surface area for luck. Um, some of it's under your control. Some of it's not. I'd say that honestly, if you are still like a wider Asian man with these kinds of degrees and pedigrees, your surface area for luck is naturally going to be a little bit higher because more people are willing to listen to you. I think that's still a reality that we're trying to neutralize to some degree to make it a little bit more fair. But there's other things too that can help you create luck. I mean, I'm someone that believes that you should live and work anywhere and around the world and our fund will support you. That said, if you're in some of these concentrated hubs, still like Silicon Valley or San Francisco, despite all the problems that are here, there's a very heavy concentration of very smart people who have a lot of money here too. So just even being in these kinds of regions can increase your surface area of luck. And frankly, Seamus, exactly what you're doing too. You're building a media company that's gaining clout every time that you put out a podcast and you're clearly a gifted interviewer too. So the fact that you have this network of hundreds of people who might become thousands of people with tens of thousands of listeners or millions of listeners over time, that's going to increase your surface area of luck as well, because you actually have distribution channels as well as network whom you can ask for advice or can serve you with capital or anything else in the future. I think your textbook case is someone that's building <laughs> greater surface area of luck. I appreciate it. Yeah. And I think I've already started to see just a little bit of that too, as well, because it's also a great potential deal flow for the future as I've already oh, yeah. had founders reach out to me asking me to invest. Some of them don't even know I'm 16, so I can't not legally invest. But And then also others who are asking me to refer to someone I've had on the podcast. So it's definitely a, it's a great point for deal flow. And as the podcast continues to grow, as the brand continues to grow, that portion of luck will grow with it. Yeah. I mean, you're going down the Harry Stubbings path, right? Like he started 20 minute VC and now he's got 20 yeah. VC. He's on his way to being, building one of the best like established new funds. And I wouldn't be surprised if like in a few years, Mbit VC is, is out there, <laughs> right? And you might be able to exclusively raise from your audience or some of the guests that you've put in, had on your show. It's a very exciting path and two years to get to 18, right? So yeah, <laughs> it's not that sure. far away. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's not. And uh, now let's go back to venture capital and let's take a look at the industry as a whole. So according to a 2015 study by Ilya of Stanford and then Will Gornall of the University of British Columbia, 43% of all U.S. company IPOs since 1974 were venture-backed. And collectively, those venture-backed companies have invested 
invested in $115 billion in R&D, accounting for 85% of all R&D spending. And that creates a $4.3 trillion market cap, which is 63% of the total market cap of public companies formed since 1974. So at an early stage, it can be very difficult to find those next IPOs. So what are some of the characteristics that you're looking for to see if it's able to grow to that next level? First Paul, thank you for educating me. I was not aware of all the minutiae of those <laughs> oh, yeah. stats. I don't frankly study them very carefully, but I, I'm not terribly surprised either. A little bit of context on that, and then I'll sort of talk about the characteristics thing. So one of the things that's been fascinating since the Great Recession is the amount of money that's been pushed into the capital markets. We had a period of really strong quantitative easing in the last decade from the Fed, and that has actually allowed, and also lower, very low interest rates. So there's just so many conditions where wealthy families, institutions had greater access to capital that hasn't been seen before. And, and also risk on appetite too. When you're just flush with money, then going after some high alphabets of just like, yo, this is might be, we might lose everything or we might like 1000 X or capital. It feels really appealing when you're just like in this kind of environment and now that's changing. So we'll be interesting in a couple of years to see what has happened now. It's, I'm struggling to get a sense of like what it looks like to what characteristics I look for to predict this stuff because at the end of the day, it's all educated guessing in the first check at least. Yep. Now, when it comes to the second or third check, there's some like heuristics that I'm starting to notice. So two that come to mind and they all relate to talent. So if the founder seems to be really fast at learning and highly adaptable and seems to be a really good student of trying to understand uh, what she needs to be in the next like two raises. So she's like a seed founder and she's already thinking about like, how do I plan to be like a series B founder where she's a series B founder? And she's like, how do I get to being like a very late stage pre-IPO company founder? You actually start to see these heuristics in some ways as you work with these folks. And someone that I actually really admire, I'll just give you an example of someone that I work with closely. Her name is Tara Viswanathan. She's a founder of a company called Rupa Health and she's providing medical infrastructure labs testing, lots of very interesting infrastructure products for root cause medicine clinics. There's a long history behind this, but it's one of those areas of medicine in the United States that's gaining a lot of steam as traditional medicine and doctors are getting harder to gain access to. They're very expensive. A lot of people are looking at alternative care and she's under, she's powering so much of the systems behind that with Rupa Health. So we invest in her when it was just her. One person, she didn't really know what she wanted to build, but she was interested in the root cause medicine space. She pivoted around for 18 months and then she found what she wanted to build. And then it's been skyrocketing. This company is just like one of the fastest going in our portfolio. One of the things that really impresses me is that she is constantly learning how to up-level her game as a CEO for the next stage. Like, what does it take to grow to like a team of 50? What kinds of skills do I need to have? And she's constantly trying to build new mentors to teach her these kinds of mental models. So it's a little bit hand wavy. It's hard for me to quantify it, but you definitely can see it of certain kinds of founders who are just voracious learners and are applying and experimenting some of these learnings directly into their leadership style too. That's part one. Part two of a leading indicator of what I think leads to businesses that have huge outcomes is the quality of recruiting. Someone like Tara, some of like the other like great founders in our portfolio, they just seem to punch above their weight in being able to convince people who are on very lucrative careers at very established businesses to leave and take a risk on them. And I think that this is one of the best leading indicator success for especially the businesses in our portfolio that are getting into the growth stages that are succeeding is that the quality of the team 
team just seems way better than they deserve. Just given like how small their business is and how new it is, they just convince people from Google or like any fan company or very like specialized industries like NASA or whatever to just like leave their very cushy posts to join this uh, frenetic startup. Those who just are, again, the summary is like voracious learners and also just great at designing organizations and cultures that scale seem to just increase their surface area for being consistently lucky as well. I agree. I think that makes a lot of sense. And that's super neat. And to wrap it up here, what are some of your takeaways for early stage founders? And what are some of your lessons that you can give them when building out their company at the early stages? One of the big lessons I think I've learned as a founder, but now as an investor as well, could be summarized in a tweet that was made by Justin Can four years ago. In 2018, he put so Justin Can was the co-founder of Twitch. They sold the company for nearly a billion dollars to Amazon. So 2018, he put out this tweet that said, first-time founders are obsessed with product. Second-time founders are obsessed with distribution. You want to be a second-time founder. And this is what this means, which is when I was a founder early on, I thought that if I built a beautiful product and great user experience, it's just naturally going to go viral. And there's certain products that have done this before in the past. But I don't think that that's a really reliable strategy at all. In fact, I think it's a terrible strategy that you can assume that can happen. There's so many conditions that need to go right for that to work. Instead, what I find I get most excited about are founders who try to validate the market first and actually even sell before they build. I'll give you an example of this. There's a founder that I know who was like the head of sales at a Salesforce or equivalent kind of business, like enterprise sales kind of thing. And she left, decided she was going to create another kind of CRM kind of business, right? So on the surface, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, do we really need another CRM? But her perspective was like, no, you don't understand. I have 2,000 clients that I work with who love me. And they've already pre-committed to say that if I build this thing, they're going to join me <laughs> instead. And then as I sort of rack up the mathematics, I'm like, this person's going to build like a $100 million business in two years, right? Because she has validated and actually has loyalty and figured out her distribution channels to sell this thing and retain these people even before she decided to build, Right. So there's many, you don't, it doesn't have to be that drastic, but I do think that the founders who spend more time on customer discovery and maybe even line up contracts or letters of intent or something that signals that there's a real business to be made here and have that in place before or as they are building out their product are the ones that are actually the companies that I get most excited about. The big takeaway here then, Seamus, is for some of the early builders who are listening to this, get as excited about distribution and marketing. Don't feel like you need to build an MVP first and then try to sell it. Think about actually flipping that order. And if you find that there is a market out there, then everything else becomes easier. Building becomes way easier. Convincing people to join you because you found that there is a market that has an acute need becomes way easier everything in life gets easier. That's what I would love to impart as one of my messages. I agree. I think that actually makes a lot of sense. And even people like Mark Cuban have mentioned that sales is super important, especially in entrepreneurship and business. He started off selling garbage bags. But I think the point of sales is very important for the creation of a business. Because if you can't sell, then your business isn't going to really grow. So if you can even sell before your business even started, then only imagine what you can do when you already have a product out there. And I'd love to hover on this for a second here, Seamus, because I think there's an important insight that I've had in my journey, at least, which is In my 20s, I realized that everything was sales, right? It wasn't, and this is actually the key skill that I think that I distilled out of it, which was, it's not just like Seamus is going to give me money for my Honda kind of sale. Like that's, yes, that is a sale, but it's a very transactional sale. A bigger part of the sale is convincing your team to get excited about the mission, 
understanding the needs of the customer that you're trying to support and their lived journey and trying to interweave that to see whether there's actually a partnership that you can share back. In my 30s, though, I actually distilled this a little bit deeper, which was, yeah, everything is sales, I guess, but actually everything is great storytelling. So a good storyteller is someone that pays a lot of attention and listens to the person that they're speaking with to understand what is it about their lived journey that I can actually weave into the story that I'm trying to tell to make it even more engaging. And this is not a question that was asked, but I'm just going to randomly just bring this up, which is, I think one of the best ways to understand great storytelling is to watch and practice stand-up comedy. (laughs) I am convinced that stand-up comics are the pinnacle of storytelling. A good stand-up comic will get up there for five minutes, deliver a killer set, and it feels like a complete experience from start to finish. And I encourage you to watch a lot on Netflix uh, as uh, some of the ways to inspire your delivery as well for great storytelling. Yeah, you brought up an excellent point on storytelling because even on TikTok, we're seeing and YouTube Shorts, we're seeing a lot more founders start building in public with their startups, with their companies, and they're already picking up traction before their startup even existed just because they're able to storytell. For example, there's this kid I had on, his name's Campbell Barron. I think he's 18 or 19 now, but uh, he started a media company, which he sold to Workweek back in a couple of years ago. And he was around 16, 17 years old at the time. And basically what he was doing is he was building out that journey in public. And right now with his startup, he's building out his startup in public and he's storytelling about his journey along the way every week, giving updates in public. And I think storytelling is super important when we get to that. It also allows you to have that connection to your customer that you didn't have before. Yeah, absolutely. And frankly, it makes the sales process way more fun. So when I go into a sale, I lead fundraising at Hustle Fund, right? To date, we've raised over $100 million for this fund. And my attitude isn't like, I'm going to go talk to Seamus, some rich dude, and be like, give me some money, right? That's actually a shallow way of living life in my mind. If it's just only about the money that you care about and not about the relationship. Instead, the way that I approach it is like, what if I can get to a level of trust and comfort where we can both be sort of vulnerable with each other to talk about what our own journeys are like? And I'm just someone who's really naturally curious about people's lived journeys because every single human being on this earth has a fascinating journey. Whether you're rich or poor or famous or not, every single human being on the planet has a fascinating story to tell. And when you can walk away, whether they decide to invest or not, but just getting a sense of, wow, who is this person? What drives them? Like, And hearing some of their journey and stories as well, that to me is a win. So this is why I love fundraising so much and sales is that You can get to that level faster and faster. And I'll give you the trick here, by the way, you lead with vulnerability. There's a Buddhist saying that I try to live my life by, which is when you bow to the mirror, the reflected image bows back. And what that actually means to me is how you treat your environment is naturally reciprocated in kind. So if I'm a jerk to people or super insecure and just mean, you're going to find a lot of insecurity and meanness directed back to you. I just believe that karma works like this. But if you're very kind, loving, and open to vulnerability and sharing like yourself to others, it naturally gets reciprocated in kind too. So I, in a great sort of session when I'm pitching, I talk about my journey growing up in Detroit, some of the weird history behind my parents' immigration story and so forth. I like to interweave that just to give them a sense of my character. And then that naturally gets reciprocated. And it's such a better way of starting a conversation when you get a sense of where we came from. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a pretty important component of where everyone comes from. I think it's super important in all types of conversations. Well, all right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to leave a five-star review down below. And uh, thank you, Eric, for taking the time to hop on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure chatting with you this afternoon. 
Yeah, Seamus, thank you again for the opportunity to speak. And I am so impressed by the media empire that you're building. Keep up the great work. I look forward to keeping in touch and hopefully chatting more in the future. I appreciate it.